It's important that we invite new ways of thinking and new ways of doing things. And the only way to do that, in my expression, is that we hold space or make sanctuary for failure. Welcome to the Amplifying Cognition podcast, formerly the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by the unlimited potential of the human mind. Each week, I speak to incredible people who are working on how we can get to next-level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making so we can keep ahead in an accelerating world. My guests share how they amplify their productivity, the success of organizations, and the potential of humanity by using an array of technologies, including AI, innovative processes, and sometimes simple everyday practices. I do this podcast to learn. I learn so much from every guest I speak to, and I'm sure you will too. If you are intent on amplifying your cognition, simply go to amplifyingcognition.com to access a trove of useful resources, including the Humans Plus AI learning community, resources and downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app, which allows you to interface more effectively with AI, transcripts from all of our podcast episodes, and far more. That's amplifyingcognition.com. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to hear more and help others to find the podcast by liking or sharing. It makes a massive difference, so thank you. On this episode, we talk to Dr. Bayo Akamolofe. Not sure if this is the exact pronunciation, but he told me that the pronunciation doesn't matter. Bayo Akomolafe is a philosopher, psychologist, poet, and the executive director and chief curator for the Emergence Network. He's been a professor and lecturer at numerous universities around the world and is author of two books, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, and We Will Tell Our Own Story. You can find more on his work at bioakamolafe.net. That's B-A-Y-O-A-K-O-M-O-L-A-F-E.net. And in this episode, we talk about uh, who we can become, uh, building new relationships with the world, post-activism, strange solidarities, and far more. I should note that this is a very different episode from almost everything else uh, we've had on this podcast. Dr. Akamalafe is a philosopher and a poet. We go very deep, and this is exactly why I wanted to talk to him, to get some perspectives on amplifying cognition at the level of humanity. And I think we uh, managed to achieve that. It's a wonderful and deeply poetic episode. It is a true delight to have you on the show, Bayo. Good to be here, Brother Ross. So I think you are one of the best qualified people to answer the question, who can we become? You know, humanity has come so far. And you know, this is a pretty critical juncture, I think, in uh, human history. But who could we become as humanity, or maybe we should even shouldn't even limit it to to humanity? Well, I'm I'm hearing a bit of Spinoza in that question. Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza, when he asks, "What can the body do?" Basically, what can our bodies become, or what can the body do? Exploring capacity and identity, and the very idea of a body, right? But I'm. I'm hearing even more emphatically something aspirational. You're not just asking in some generic term, um, what can the body do? You're, or in some generalized way, you're, you're, you're seeking, especially now in such 
a moment of deep trouble to explore what it is that we can rise to, if you will. So yes. what, what else is possible? What else could we become other than the warring, excavating, ecology-denying species we are or we've tended to be? Of course, that is a bit generalistic, you know, um, to, to say that we are a warring species. First, there isn't a singular monolithic species that is the human, right? We are diffracted, we are territorial, we are more than just uh, an edifice, you know, there, there's a plurality there. But I'm, I'm trying to feel the dimensions, if you notice, I'm often closing my eyes to feel the dimensions of the question, to let it land on my fingertips well. And I guess what feels like a response here is that it depends. I know that that doesn't really say much, but there is a tendency to read the human as independent, magisterial, imperial, removed, isolated, dissociated from what the world is exploring and doing. Because we've performed this myth, this story of independence, of privacy, of gilded selves and interiorities, we have um, performed presence as um, this toxic, poisonous thing that some scientists call the Anthropocene. And that's, in a sense, who we are. You know, it's not, it's not totalizing, it's partial. But in a sense, that, is, that has become the dominant narrative about who we are. It's also the dominant narrative of who we are becoming. It's a statement about the future, right? That by this time, we would have this, it's, it's future tense, right? We would have damaged the planet to this extent that if an alien extraterrestrial species should come, they would find our bones sedimented with plastics and chemicals and, and discarded material. But I feel that we could be different, but that would depend, like I said, it depends. It would, it would depend on a different kind of arrangement, different kinds of constraints, different kinds of alliances with the more than human world, different kinds of solidarities, stranger kinds of solidarities. It would mean we would have to find new ways of telling stories and would have to find new ways of meeting the world around us, microbes, viruses, bacteria, fungi, furniture, texture, intensity. All of those things are the, are the things that contribute to the human. So we, those things would need to be reformulated in, in order for us to find new identities, right? So I don't know what we're becoming. I don't know what, I don't think in terms of destinations or utopias, but I feel that in order for us to become different, we would need to find new ways of building new relationships with the world. We would need to lose our way. Yeah. 
So that sounds to me as, as a form of transcendence, as in we transcend who we have been to to something beyond. And as part of what you were saying, I, I think, evokes the ideas of duality, as in, you know, the scientific method and the, the history of, you know, the Cartesian approach is that we divide and we we are separate from the world and we divide ourselves. And so part of it is how do we transcend the you know the difference that we make between ourselves and the world in which we live and also the the problems that we have created ourselves we just have the, the, the making that division so w- is that a, a reasonable frame to say that we can tra- transcend or what what is that journey from f- to beyond that it's intriguing that you think of it as transcendence i often consider myself an a philosopher of imminence, right. right? Along the lines of Deleuze, you know, um, I think in terms of dense and thick relationships and webs of entanglement, rather than stepping out of the web or creating some kind of human contingent project that means we define ourselves as supreme or outside of relationships. So, um, I think of how differences come to be within relationships. Transcendence presupposes, at least in the ways that I've, I've come to use it and the ways that I read texts around it, transcendence presupposes duality, two realms, the realms of the material and the realms of the supramaterial, outside of the material, where things are already predefined and the material is a mere reflection of that. I don't think of the world in this way. I think of the world as collectively open-ended, emergent, promiscuous, seeking and touching itself, possibly orgasmic, you know, um, right? So, so um, though, though maybe perhaps to clarify, perhaps I, do, I didn't do a good job of situating myself in with regards to the beautifully framed first question you asked, but it might be helpful to think of ants, ants and their death spirals. There's this phenomenon, and I use it ad nauseum, you know, this example of ants getting stuck in an ant death trap. So this is a circle where they go round and round and round because of some accident with the chemicals they secrete, you know, for pheromones you know, or for yes. navigation, cold pheromones, right? I call it an accident, but that's a limited reading. But at least our observations in, inform us that they rotate in circles until they die, brother. They die in the circles and they're unable you know, to do anything else. They just die in the circles because they get trapped in that pheromone secretion. Um, I've often asked myself, what can the ant become? You know, like you. Um, is it possible for the ant to step out of its trance, to do other things with the world, to, to break out of that jail, you know, jailbreak? And one way that it, an ant can do that if it's, if, is if it's infected by fungi, right? And I'm not going to go through the process, uh, the process, but there's a fungal entity called uh, Cadiceps, and it infiltrates the ant. And it develops, you know, it kind of takes over the ant's body 
and drives the ant away from whatever entanglement it has with its colony. That's one way for the ant to break out, right? By hybridizing its body with fungi. So that's what I'm talking about here. When you say, can we be different? I'm imagining difference as infection, not as transcendence. There's nothing transcendent about an ant getting infected by mm. Cordyceps unilateralis. So I'm thinking about all the ways we can become different by building new kinds of relationships with the world around us. Because we are not naturally extractivists. We're not naturally capitalists. We're not naturally this or that. The nature comes from arrangement, just like in a dual slit experiment, light can either be wave or particle. That's not binary. That's, um, that's a dichotomy of some kind, but it doesn't necessarily mean one is superior to the other, right? As in a binary. Um, but that depends on the arrangement or what is measured. If you measure light in a particular way, it will behave like a particle. And if you measure light in another way, it will behave like a wave. None of that is transcendent. It depends on material measurements. And in the same way, I feel the human can be a lot more alien than it is right now, but it will depend on measurements. And those measurements are like hybridizations or infections. I, I want to come back to that, but, but perhaps part of the answer is in looking at uh, what you are doing with the Emergence Network, which you describe as a, a post-activist project, which to my, you know, as I understand from the outside, is seeing that if we have manifested the problems, we need to transcend the the ways in which we you know, that separation from ourselves and the problem. You could say that um, post-activism is, is not a, an attempt to escape the problem. Um, it's not a bypassing of the problem. It's not a dismissal of the problem. It's a deterritorialization of the problem. It's And deterritorialization might be a stressful word for some people to hear. Um, uh, but it's when objects take on new kinds of dimensions within relationships. For instance, a chair might be a chair to me, right? And useful to be defined as a chair within the circumstances of the relationships that we're having right now. It's a chair because it's upholding my body in conversation to my son. And this is for real. To my son, who is autistic, this is a spaceship or sometimes a pirate ship. And he pushes it about. And in that instant, it, it's, uh, it's deterritorialized. It's not a chair merely. Within the relationship, it gains new territories, new meanings, new possibilities, right? So in the same way, um, I feel... Um, Post-activism notices that we are part of moral arrangements and how we decide what is good to do or what is bad to avoid or what we should protest or what we, what we should fight for as we do with activism is all part of an arrangement. But sometimes the world breaks open, brother. 
And those things change and become deterritorialized, right? And, and then we find ourselves compelled to ask new questions, to go in different directions. For instance, the pandemic, to bring it down, the pandemic forced Indian parents, for instance, I'm in India, forced Indian parents to ask new questions about education, right? Suddenly everyone was at home. It was a new social and material arrangement. Everyone was at home. Kids were no longer at school. Parents were getting used to that circumstances, were coming down from their beds in the morning. And instead of finding those, their children on their way to school, we suddenly had to live with their own kids. And I remember a couple of journalists coming to our house, asking my wife, because we don't send our kids to school. We have this de-schooling practice. And they asked my wife, how do you keep your kids productive? What do you do with kids when they're not at school? And my wife was like, I'm trying my best to keep them less productive, <laughs> right? I'm trying to tone down because I'm tired of all their... We, we were used to it, but most people were not used to it. But you see, those questions would not have been possible if a virus didn't crack the economy open. So I'm talking about those moments when the world breaks open and new questions sprout. That's post-activism. It's not after activism. It's a very, but it's yes. when new possibilities become intelligible, if you will. Very quick break to point you to AmplifyingCognition.com. You'll find our stack of resources to help you get to next level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making, including the Humans Plus AI learning community with extensive courses and events, free downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app to achieve more with AI, productivity programs for individuals and companies, and far more. Now back to the show. So, so you've used the word new arrangements or different arrangements yes. in various ways. And yes. so the, in the emergence network, is what are the ways in which the emergence network is facilitating the, these new possibilities of new arrangements? So what we, what we are excited about doing is noticing first that the ways we respond to crisis is, or to a crisis, or to the crisis, is part of the crisis. That is a shocking thing to say for most people, because we often expect that the world is divided neatly into the categories of problems and solutions. And so when a problem is out there, objectively defined and separate from how we approach it, what we do is sit in our isolation and then we come up with solutions to the problem. It's, it's difficult for people to notice, and maybe not that difficult any longer, but it seems to be so difficult for people to understand that how we measure the world is also how we show up in the world. We're not separate from the world we try to understand, right? We're not outside. We don't live on a planet. We are the planet in its complexity, right? It's just like a wave. I often tell the joke about a wave, an ocean wave, you know, a small ocean wave saying to itself, I wish I were as large as the ocean. But that wave is the ocean in its complexity, in its ongoing materiality, right? So there, there isn't... A, um, where was I going with this? 
there there isn't a uh, fixed destination. There isn't a some isolation that we're trying to navigate here. What we're trying to do here is notice and hold space for and nurture errancy. The errancy is, um, of course, the the act of being wrong or straying away from a highway, right? So we're, we are we are holding space for communities that are looking for other ways to respond or to be accountable or to respond to a crisis that doesn't, in fact, reinforce the metaphysics of that crisis. Think, for instance, the Gaza situation right now. Think about the moral compulsion to adopt a stance and how that is coterminous with our social algorithms. It is, it's like people are creating images of, you might call it moral purity. And if you don't want to go that extreme, you, you may just call it a position. It's like the proliferation of positions seems to be part of the phenomenon of this crisis. So people are saying things like, I stand with this. I stand with that, right? And I'm questioning, I'm interrogating, or I'm intrigued by the idea that how we stand actually contributes or the postures we adopt actually contributes to this crisis because I don't think it's a, it's a conflagration or a war between two sides per se. I think it's the secretion of an arrangement, a social structure, right? So um, we are inviting communities of inquiry, networks, to kind of craft new ways of thinking about the world in its crisis without reinforcing those positions um, that are deadening and exhausted, in a nutshell. So, uh, so I'll come back. Like to come back to sort of where where people can find out more and, and engage with that. But the but take take just a, a, a bit of a shift is is around thinking about Africa, and well, we don't need to limit ourselves to Africa. But the, the you know from as as you know for decades people have said Africa is the continent of the future, and today it is seems to be more true than ever but i would love to to hear your thoughts on africa as africa's future and africa's future uh, africa in uh humanity's future i don't know <laughs> i don't know there, there's something about the framing and I'm, i don't know if that's a, a stable or a popular framing but africa of the future sounds a lot like the framework that makes intelligible this idea of Africa as a rising economy. There's something like that that still feels intelligible to the ways we understand nation states and the global order and progress and democracy and industrialization and development and growth, right? So a rising economy. Africa is a continent of the future. It has more young people than old people. We're getting more technologi uh, technologically sophisticated. Uh, we're improving our economies. More nation states are adopting democracy. Africa is, uh, I don't know. I don't know 
I don't know about that. I don't know if I can give myself to that framework. Um, it, it feels suspiciously familiar to me. Um, but there might be a sense in which we could speak about Africa as um, a canary in, in a coal mine, you know, as prophetic. That doesn't mean Africa is, or that doesn't necessarily position Africa at the head of some futural project. But, but it, it says that in a sense, um, the continent has been treated as a dumping place for progress. Africa, in many real senses, still receives the waste of the Western industrialized world. Like 93% of recyclable material actually goes to the continent. You know, it doesn't go to a green emerald city and then re re repurposed as green products. It comes to Africa. It goes to the global south. So that in a sense, Africa is, and I don't think of Africa as uniquely um, or as monolithic. Uh, there are many Africas within Africa, right? I just hope that is clear. Um, but in a sense, for our conversational purposes, Africa is is um, is the engine room for for the human as a colonial project, and it has subsidized this transcendence project um, to leave the world behind and to create, you know, a world that is flat and flattened and clear. Um, in that sense, Africa is troublingly futural, not in a way that I would celebrate, but that it, it's, it's caught up in an understanding of time and temporality and progress that is no longer serving for our species. Yeah. I hope Africa and many other places around the world drops off the progress machine. Right. I hope Africa um, becomes a prophetic um, um, space of experimentation with plural governance structures, ways of thinking about technology and ourselves and the world, ways of understanding education and economies that are not reducible to the liberal world order and the consensus we've built after the Second World War. I, I'm, I'm hoping that some other tentative projects emerge that breaks through this conformist, carceral dynamic we found ourselves in, where politics no longer serves, on the right and on the left. That's, that's beautiful, and I think in terms of framing, you know, that, that potential, as you say, not been an echo of what the what other, yeah, the West's and the West yes. as it were has done, but some re re creation of what is, you know, what societies can be. I just want just want to add this very quickly, brother. Just to add, just to that that most of the time, for decades on end, the framework was that Africa was late. August Comte, the sociologist, would think about Africa on the one, the latter end of the spectrum, 
we needed to catch up. And so the idea of the catch-up narrative or imperative was entrenched in us as we're kids, you know, right from being children in school. Um, now, you know, from being late, we're now early. We're now, oh, you're the future and all that. And it still seems to be caught in the same spectrum. This is what I'm saying. Yes. That our rather Africa is out of time. <laughs> that Africa falls off the clock. The atomic militaristic clock, right? That, that would be a good future. <laughs> you could say that. So, so to, to round out, I mean, we, you've talked, I think uh, a lot of the framing has been, of course, at a very macro level, at the level of humanity or societies. And I loved uh, the, a couple of things you were saying, for example, around the circle of ants and what required to break out was uh, being infected with a fungus or how the coronavirus, in fact, enabled us to break out of the patterns of the past. I'd like, like to think of the at an individual level, as in what are the fractures or forks in the path or the ways as an individual? You know, what is your advice to individuals to be able to go off what is the path which seems to be given to us or which we get stuck on in our, in our lives? What is, how can people... You know, find those divergences or create those divergences which, which take them where they could be. Okay. Um, I'll answer with two tongues, like a snake, like a trickster. Um, on one end, on one side of my tongue, I will say that um, the individual is a vocation of the public. So that I, I don't know, really, I have... I'm, I don't know how to think about individuals as fates accompli, as finished products. When I think about the individual, I instead think about individuation, you know, along the lines of, along the lines of Gilbert Simondon, right? It's a process. And this process is already connected with social, political, archaeological, architectural, ecological, biological, ancestral archetypal processes you you cannot remove or separate them you know it doesn't come down to our level you know and it's not always when available for that kind of scrutiny what's going on in the world at large which is the reason why i call into question the immediacy of um the kinds of solidarities that are being expressed at the moment without pathologizing them or dismissing them or throwing my hand off and saying it's wrong or evil. I don't think of the world that way. But, but stressing them and noticing the tensions and the entanglements of taking stands in that way and how that feels like a response within emergency, a framework of emergency that collapses at this or that, it doesn't seem to rise to the complicatedness or the complexity the nuance that this moment, you know, really deserves, if you will. So um, I don't know how to arrive at the individual. But on the other hand, I'm, we're always there, aren't we? We are making choices, so to speak, right? I don't think in terms of choices, but let's go with that. We are making choices. My wife yesterday was telling me that 
um, some paper she read um, by some psychologist um, notices that we make 35,000 choices every morning. That by, by morning time or by noon, we've already, I think, it's, I think that's what she said, that we've already made 35,000 choices, right, decisions. Of course, that tells me that we are not the ones making them because it doesn't seem to be a conscious thing. Um, and so therefore we should reframe what choices are, but I digress. Um, if we stick to the individual as a space of agency, then I would invite people to notice that cracks are emerging around the world. Notice how it's becoming difficult to be yourself. Notice the spaces where things don't add up and share that, share those difficulties, find others and share those difficulties, those failures with them. Because I feel that as we become stuck within patterns of re repetition, not repetition, repeatability, I want to think about them as different. As we become stuck in patterns of repeatability, it's important that we invite new ways of thinking and new ways of doing things. And the only way to do that in my, ex in my expression is that we hold space or make sanctuary for failure, for the fugitive, for where things don't add up, for where our losses are strong, where grief wants to erupt. So instead of covering up the portals, instead of healing the wounds, let them breathe in a way, but find the others to do this with. I think in some way that feels like um, an individual level expression and invitation to strange kinds of solidarities. Absolutely. And I, I just what you've just been saying is, uh, I think, the highlight of our conversation for me. It's, I mean, it's been a wonderful, wonderful conversation, but I, I think that it's actually what you're saying is very pragmatic. I think so. And I hope that people will be able to take that into their lives. So where can people go to find out about your work and also the Emergence Network? I mean, a Google search would suffice. My name, Biocomlefe, would, would pop up lots of things. You can, you can click on one of them. And the Emergence Network is just as well. The, the, a new website and a new administration is coming into place. I'm excited about the new team coming up. It's led by Erin Dunford, a dear sister, um, who is now the new director, or the lead weaver of the Emergence Network. And a beautiful team across the planet is coming together to hold space for this beautiful exploration. So people write, ask questions, and we'll meet in the middle. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. If you really want to amplify your cognition, go to amplifyingcognition.com, where you can access a trove of useful resources to make your mind better and more effective than ever before. If you liked this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review, and subscribe if you want to hear more of this. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.